0: Good morning. My name is Carl. I'm one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. Glad you guys are with us. I'm eager to get into the Word of God with you this morning. Any of you ever had a song stuck in your head? Yeah. Britney Spears. <laughs> Literally all morning, all morning. Even just now, just like right now, walking up here like it was my walk-up song in Major League Baseball or something. I thought maybe if I said something, it would go away. I won't tell you what song, because I love you. But it's in there. It's noodling around. It has nothing to do with anything. So we have been... <laughs> I don't know what just happened. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Matthew, right? And we're in the middle of the, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has begun this kind of most famous of sermons by walking through the Beatitudes right where he lists off these statements like blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And now we've gotten into the next section of the sermon where Jesus is talking to his audience about the relationship between the law, right, the commandments of God in the Old Testament, and the kingdom of God. He tells them about this law. He says, I have not come to abolish that law. That's not going away, but I have come to fulfill it. He's saying that there is a need For that law to be obeyed perfectly, and the people can't do it. The law isn't going away, Jesus is saying, but its demands will be successfully met. And he finishes by saying to them, unless you have a righteousness, a right standing before God that is greater than, that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that would have sounded impossible to his hearers, which is exactly what he intends. He shocks them with this assertion, that the only way into the kingdom of heaven is to obtain a righteousness that's greater than the most righteous people that you can think of. Who among you is the most righteous? And they say, well, the scribes and the Pharisees, those guys are crushing it. And he's like, not good enough. needs to be better than that. So then Jesus kind of embarks upon a bit of further explanation about what he means through six examples, through six illustrations, and that's what we've been looking at the last several weeks. Each of those examples is meant to demonstrate the reality of this situation. Not that the bar is here and that the scribes and Pharisees are just, oh man, they're almost there, but rather that the bar is infinitely above that. And nobody measures up, not the scribes, not the Pharisees, and not you. It has to be something greater than what they've accomplished. So whatever you see as the very best thing that can be done, that's not good enough. That's what he's saying. Those teachings are meant to be crushing. When Jesus walks through these examples, his intent is for the people to be like, what, are you kidding? That's not possible, right? Jesus is showing us and them that the actual expectations of God's law are so far out of reach that there's no way in our own strength to attain that righteousness that he's speaking about. So he tells of these six examples to make it clear. In case you didn't hear what I said, in case you didn't understand what I'm saying, let me give you six examples to prove to you what I'm talking about. So he starts off by talking about the kind of righteousness that the law actually requires on the issue of murder and anger. You have heard, do not murder. I say to you, even if you are angry and have hatred in your heart, then you have committed the same sin. What? For real? Seriously? Yes. Then he talks about the kind of righteousness that the law actually requires regarding lust and adultery. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, even if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed the same sin. For real? Yes. Then he talks about the kind of righteousness the law actually requires regarding divorce you thought it was okay to get a divorce because Moses said you could have a certificate. Give it to her, send her away. As long as you play by those rules, all is well. But I'm saying to you, no, 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 no. That was never part of God's plan. He did not give marriage with also this loophole for you. Divorce is not something that God wants. And then he talks about the kind of righteousness that the law actually requires regarding the making of oaths. Stop swearing on things, oh, I swear on my mother's grave, I swear on my head, I swear on God, I swear on this, so that you'll now really think I'm telling the truth. No, 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 no. Just let the truth come out of you all the time. The expectation is significantly higher. And now today, Jesus is going to speak to us about the fifth example. What kind of righteousness is required regarding the notion of retaliation or vengeance or trying to seek earthly justice? So... Let's pray, and then we will consider God's Word together. Father, uh, we come to you this morning uh, in great need. We need you. We need your Word. We need to understand who you are and what you have done and how your mercy and your grace has been so abundantly poured out for us in Christ. As we consider this sermon that he preaches, as we consider these examples that he's giving. We ask for you to be near. Help us to see these things correctly, that we might be encouraged and reminded that while it is crushing to think that I cannot do what God has asked, that there is one who's come, who has done it for me. What a gift that is. What a glorious gift that is. So I pray that our eyes would be focused on that, that our hearts would be attuned to that. And as we think on these things, That we would not be discouraged, but rather we would find hope, we would find joy, that we would be awakened anew to the reality of who you are and what you've done. So be near to us as we study your word together, that your name might be made great, that our hearts might be closely tethered to yours through the study of what you have proclaimed to us through your son in this text today. We love you and we thank you that you love us. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. Okay, let's start with verse 38 and the first half of verse 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So this statement follows the same format as the the ones that came before it, right? You have heard this, but I say to you this. And so what is it that he says you have heard? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Or a tooth. This is something that is known in the ancient world as lex talionis, is the Latin phrase. It's the idea of equitable punishment for crime, right? You do this thing, then that same thing is going to be done to you in punishment, right? It's the idea that we want to give you an equitable punishment for your crime, right? That's the idea. Lex talionis, literally an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. And the Bible is very clear that this is indeed the expectation that God has placed on his people in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 23 to 25. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. Leviticus 24, 19 to 20. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Deuteronomy 19, 18 to 21. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, we've heard this before. We're aware of this idea. This is not new to most of us. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is something you've heard and seen, I'm sure. But most of us, this idea hits us differently than it's meant to. When we think about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? Like, Ooh, that's harsh. And we immediately start thinking of all the exceptions. Oh, man, what if, like, if I accidentally bumped into you and popped your eye out? Now, I got to lose my eye because I accidentally bumped into you? Golly, this is a terrible law. I hate this. This is really vengeful. We have a much more civilized method of justice in our country. If you pop my eye out, you're going to go to a jail for a proper amount of time for your crime. If you rob a bank, you're going to go to jail. right? We think of, of this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing as being something worse than what we're doing, but that's not what's meant. What we're used to is this varying degree of imprisonment, right? We don't see this as some sort of restraint. We see it as vengeance. Ooh, yikes, why would God allow them to do that, right? Because we have this civilized justice system. But vengeance that we kind of look at this as is actually what it's meant to prohibit, to prevent, right? Because that's what our nature is. Human nature is to retaliate and not in equal measure. Human nature is to retaliate and up the ante just a little bit. You did this to me, I'm going to do it to you a little worse, right? Anybody seen the movie Untouchables? Mm, some of us, very few of us. Nobody raised your hand, of course, I didn't ask you to raise your hand. Toss what I'm talking about, okay? 1987, huh, Carl, that was before most of us were born. Listen, you hush, I'm telling, <laughs> I'm telling a cool story. There's a movie called The Untouchables. The premise of the movie is Al Capone, Played by Robert De Niro, is a bad mobster in in Chicago. And uh, Kevin Costner plays the Elliot Ness, which is the FBI investigator who's trying to get Capone. And one of the guys that's helping Elliot Ness is this really hard-seasoned cop from the streets of Chicago, played by Sean Connery. Sean Connery is talking to Kevin Costner about how we're going to get him. How can we get Al Capone? And Kevin Costner is, whatever I can do within the bounds of the law, and Sean Conner goes, Mm-mm. you want to get Al Capone? He brings a knife, you bring a gun. He puts one of yours in the hospital, you put one of his in the morgue, right? That's the scene. And the men are all like, yeah, that's so tough. But that's the idea. That is the heart of men. We see that and like, yeah, yeah, you come at me with a knife, I'm pulling my gun. That's right. Put my kid in the hospital, I'm putting your kid in the, in the morgue, I'm putting him in the grounds, right? We, we think that sounds good. That's what our hearts want, right? Now, to be a little more realistic, the way we experience this, right? You're on the highway, some guys merging on, merging. And you just put right in front of you, and you're like, mmm, merge, bro. You're responsible for merging. I'm on the hot, mm-mm, mm-mm. You're Oh, you like them brakes? You like those brakes? Oh, 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 the traffic's completely stopped. We're at a dead stop. You like those reverse lights? What's up? Right? Like, that's what your heart wants. Now, you may not do that. You may not even think that. It might just be me. But I don't think it is. I think many of you think those things. But that's the idea. Human nature is to retaliate and up the ante. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is meant to put a restraint on that. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is meant to put a cap on that, to hinder that, to diminish that up in the ante thing, okay? It's meant to remove the idea of real vengeance as we might interpret it. So once again, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is not given to foster vengeance like we might think of it. In fact, vengeance is explicitly forbidden In the Old Testament, God says it very clearly. Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this method of an eye for an eye was instituted in order to curb or remove or reduce the need and the desire for vengeance or a vendetta or some sort of of never-ending blood feud. I heard one pastor say, that this idea of lex talionis, this eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, was given to build a dam in the river of violence that flows from a man's evil heart. That's what eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is meant to do. So this is similar to the issue of divorce. When we talked about divorce, right? divorce was not allowed for or part of God's beautiful plan, but rather divorce was given because of the wickedness and the hardness of men's hearts. In a similar way, that's what we're dealing with here. This lex talionis was given to reduce or diminish the wickedness that flows out of men's hearts. So, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And what's the second part? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So, do not resist, right? This seems likely, especially where he goes after this, it seems very likely what he's talking about is resistance in some sort of formal way. Some sort of resistance in a court of law, or something like that, or whatever system of justice is used for dealing with the issue that you've got, right? So whether that's you know the court system, the justice system in America, or HR department at your job, or the elders at a church, or whatever system is given within which you would seek earthly justice, he's saying, "Do not resist the one who is evil." And who's the one who is evil? He's not talking about the devil. He's not talking about Satan. He's not saying, "Don't resist Satan." He's saying, don't resist the person who is perpetrating evil against you. Don't resist someone who is making an accusation against you. Jesus is saying that if someone comes against you, that your heart should flee from retaliation. He's saying, do not retaliate, but even more than that, don't even resist the evil that is perpetrated against you. Now again, let's not get tunnel vision and kind of focusing in on the idea of non-resistance or something like that, this verse and others are used to promote the idea of, uh, of just complete non-resistance. Right? Just completely avoiding all conflict. Never ever respond to anything ever. right? But that's not the context that Jesus is talking about. That's not the point that he's making. Carl is preaching a sermon right now that primarily focuses on the idea of vengeance and retaliation, but that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is preaching a bigger sermon. He's not talking about retaliation as the primary point. The point he's making, is about the righteousness of the kingdom. Jesus is talking about the kind of righteousness that is required of the people of the kingdom. Jesus is saying, you want to know what it takes? You want to know what the standard really is? Okay, here you go. And he's listing off these seemingly impossible demands. He's saying that that the things I'm saying to you, these are the things that the law has always required. I'm not telling you some new thing because it's the people Not God. God is saying it's you, not me, that has diminished my law. It's you, not me, that's interpreted it to be these things that you could potentially attain. I can not murder. I can keep from committing adultery. I can get a divorce and still try to follow the rules. But Jesus is showing us it's completely impossible to actually obey the law correctly because of sin. So you have heard it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And so what Jesus is saying is, here's this natural state that you're in. You want to up the ante and have vengeance and go back and forth. I gave you an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to diminish that and put a put a lid on it. And I'm telling you, that's not good enough for you. There must be something more. You must give more. That there should be an escalation, but the escalation is actually in the opposite direction than you think it is. So, what's he saying? What do you mean, Jesus? Somebody does me wrong, I'm just supposed to take it, be fine with that. Someone harms me, I'm just supposed to not seek retribution of any kind. If someone sues me, I'm supposed to settle out of court and give them more than they asked for. Is that what you're trying to tell me? And Jesus says, funny you should ask. So he gives four illustrations of this idea, starting with the second half of verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, we often think of this verse like, oh, we've heard this one bazillion times, right? Your your mom said it to you when you were a kid and you were fighting with your siblings, turn the other cheek, right, or whatever. And we think of it as, okay, if someone hits me, someone physically attacks me, I'm supposed to stand there and be a pacifist and just let them hit me more, right? But we really need to look at what the text is actually saying. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, what does that mean? If they hit me on the left cheek, then we can fisticuffs, we can do this. Ha-ha, <laughs> you didn't slap me on the right cheek, let's go. No, what he's saying is everyone in ancient Israel... Thought of right handedness being the thing. You are right handed, period. Your left hand, to some, to some degree, is thought of as unclean. So everyone's right handed. If I'm going to slap you while you're facing me on your right cheek, I now have to backhand you with my right hand, which is an insult. It is a, dimin- a diminishment of your character. It is an impugning of who you are as a person. I am saying something to you by backhanding you, and it isn't, let's fight. I'm saying, I think you are unworthy. I'm intentionally insulting you. Jesus is continuing with the idea of retaliation, being something that, instead of being diminished by lex talionis, instead of being lessened by an eye for an eye, Jesus is saying that in the kingdom of God, righteousness looks like retaliation being removed. So here I am, backhanding you across the face, insulting you to the greatest degree, and you say, hit me again. Insult me again. Tell me I'm dumb again, because I'm not going to play this game. Is Jesus saying that Christians cannot flee when they're attacked? of course not. Is Jesus saying that Christians cannot defend themselves when they're physically attacked? No, that's not his point. He's not asking us to just curl up in a ball while someone beats you to death in a dark alley. That's not what he's talking about. This verse, along with others, is used, like I said, to defend this posture of total pacifism, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about this kingdom righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees and how the expectations of the law are far greater than the people imagined. Let's talk about this face slapping a little more. Getting slapped across the face, being backhanded in this particular instance that Jesus is talking about, is indeed a physical attack, right? In today's world, if you slap me, I can just pull my phone out, 911, I have just been assaulted. And the police will come, and they will arrest you and take you away. All right? That's, it's a physical attack. There's no doubt about it. And because that's the way we deal with stuff now, there's not a lot of slapping. You don't see a lot of slapping going on in front of Walmart. Instead, what we do is we find other ways to insult and shame each other by posting things online about them, spreading rumors about them to their friends, talking trash about them on social media. We found other ways to insult and harm each other without backhanding each other because that's how we deal with this sort of thing today. So we tend to read this verse and we decide, wrongly, that this verse is about the physical aspect of the attack. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about being wronged. He's talking about being insulted. He's talking about being shamed because that's what being backhanded across the face is. It's one of the most insulting things you can do to a person. That was true then, still true today. When Will Smith walked up on that stage at the Oscars and just popped Chris Rock in the face, did anybody think, ooh, they're about to fight? No, he immediately turned around, went right back to his chair, right? And we were like, what What just happened? Why did he do that? that? That's crazy. He just insulted Chris Rock because that's the way that works. We think of these things as being insulting, and that's what Will Smith intended. He intended to insult Chris Rock because he felt like Chris had insulted his wife in that joke. Being slapped across the face is indeed a physical act. But the point that Jesus is making here about turning the other cheek is more about how to respond when someone insults or shames or wrongs you. Jesus is saying that the appropriate response is to offer them the other cheek, meaning if you are insulted, dishonored, shamed, you should say nothing. And in fact, remain silent and be willing and ready to receive more insult and more dishonor. That is what Jesus' point is. He's saying that that is what the kingdom of God and the righteousness required to be a part of it looks like. That's what it looks like. That's his point. The very posture of receiving insult and injury was prophesied about Jesus in Isaiah. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And this is a prophecy about the Messiah. And then, of course, he actually walked it out himself during his arrest and his beating. Matthew 27. Verses 12 to 14, but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So Jesus is saying, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is what it looks like. Okay. Okay. Illustration number two, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So now we're talking even more specifically about actual legal proceedings, things that might result in the court system or the justice system getting involved. Jesus is saying that if someone sues you in order to take your shirt, that you should give them your jacket as well, right? which I think says a lot about the value of clothing at the time. I can't imagine someone suing me and saying, oh, I'm taking you to court, Brouwer, mm, and I want that, that button-down, short-sleeved Coles shirt you're wearing. I'm like, mm, no, not that shirt. But at the time that Jesus is speaking, the shirt, the tunic, was the garment that you wore closest to your body right? And it wasn't a shirt like we wear. It was longer. we will go down your knees, maybe even further than your knees. So if someone gave someone, if you had to give someone your tunic, now you're exposed unless you have your cloak on. But now if you have to take that off and give that to them too, you're essentially running around in your underwear. Is Jesus advocating for his people to walk around in their underwear? No, certainly not. That's not the point. Let's consider more what he's actually saying. I think we'll be able to see what the point really is. Now, Under Mosaic law, the outer cloak was an unalienable possession, something that you would not be required to give up, right? Exodus 22, verses 26 to 27. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So even if you owed someone, if you had this great debt, they were not allowed to take your cloak from you, your outer garment, because it was deemed too personal, too necessary, right? It's like the idea of declaring bankruptcy today, and not like the Michael Scott kind of bankruptcy. You stand in the middle of the office, I declare bankruptcy, right? And then the accountant, Oscar, comes and goes, hey, man, you know, just saying bankruptcy doesn't do anything. He goes, huh? I didn't say it. I declared it, okay? We're not talking about that kind of bankruptcy. We're talking about real-world, actual bankruptcy, which is a legal thing you can do. You can file for bankruptcy, and you can do it in such a way that you get to retain your primary residence. You get to keep your house. You might even get to keep one of your cars. You lose lots of assets and so on, but you get to keep certain things because even in our modern American justice system, we believe there are some things that ought not to be taken from you. You need them. They're too necessary, and we can't take them from you. And in a similar way, in ancient Israel, your cloak was an item that you could keep legally even if you were in significant debt. So Jesus is talking about the idea of voluntarily giving up something of great value and need for your life even when it's not required of you or even when it might be out of place to give it. Giving more of your wealth, giving more of your belongings, giving more of your name, giving more of your reputation, giving more of your comforts, giving up these things that you hold dear for the sake of others. So does that mean that if we file for bankruptcy for some reason, if we manage our finances so poorly that we got to file for bankruptcy? Well, according to Jesus, I need to go ahead and give up my house and my car too. No, that's kind of missing the point. Jesus is talking about showing honor to others putting the needs of others before yourself, going above and beyond whatever the societal norms might be in order to walk in the kind of righteousness that Jesus is describing. He's talking about avoiding the contest in court altogether. This guy's suing you for your tunic? Give it to him. Give him your cloak too. Shut that down. Because the court system and personal relationships ought to be and necessarily should be different, right? We shouldn't want our personal relationships to look the way that the courts look, and we shouldn't want the courts to look like our personal relationships look. We would not want those things treated the same way. If someone goes to court because they robbed a bank, should the court say, hmm, you robbed a bank, bro, it's on camera, but we forgive you. You're free to go. If you rob another bank, we will forgive you. 70 times seven, that's how many banks you can, you can rob do we want that? No. And that's not good. That's not how it ought to be. Similarly, we should not want lex talionis to be the method with which we deal with one another in personal relationships. Those two things should look different. And that's exactly what the people of God were doing, which is why Jesus is addressing this. The people of God had observed these legal methods that had been developed by God, this lex talionis, and thought to themselves, surely that should be good enough for me as an individual while we're dealing with one another. That seems fair. I like it. That's how I should deal with people too because that's in line with how God has said things should be. But that's not good enough. That's what Jesus is saying. That standard is the wrong standard for you as a believer dealing with other people. It's not good enough. I gave you that lex talionis to curb this ever-escalating vengeance Jesus is telling us that to settle out of court with someone who's coming after you by giving them more than what they're asking for is good in order to maintain peace. God doesn't even want his people participating in lawsuits at all with one another. We hear that clearly from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul is making clear, explicit, what Jesus is implying. He's saying, whatever you thought it meant to follow God's law, it's more than that. It's harder than that. So much so that it seems impossible to you. It seems unbearable to you. And that's the point. Okay. Illustration number three, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This one is weird because on the surface, it doesn't make sense. Who in the world is going to force me to go one mile anywhere? That's what? That's weird. Who's doing that? No one, right? Am I going to be like a 7-Eleven filling up my hail damaged 2005 Honda Odyssey minivan and some dude runs up with a gun and slides the door open and jumps in and says, you're going to take me to Starbucks down there on Virginia and Harden? I'm like, bro, that's a mile away. I'm taking you to scooters. It's cheaper and further. I'm obeying Jesus. No, that's not how it is. We have to understand what the word force means. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, what does that even mean? We think somebody grabs me and goes, you're going a mile with me. I'm like, I don't want to go. And you're like that's not what's, what he's talking about. We have to understand what this means. This word is only used two times in the New Testament. Here and one more place I'll tell you about in just a second. What is meant is this idea of something called impressment, meaning there was a legal recourse for Roman soldiers to force common people to work for them temporarily. I'm a Roman soldier. I'm coming through town with all my Roman soldier buddies, and we have all of our stuff. We got our luggage, we got our food, we got our weapons, we got all of our stuff. And and we're tired of carrying this stuff. You, come over here. You're carrying my bags. Carry them for a mile. And they can legally do that, and you have to do it. That's the way it was. Now, the other time this word is used in the New Testament is when Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry Jesus' cross. So that's what's meant here. If anyone forces you to go one mile. So we have to understand what this word means, and once we do, it makes a little bit better sense. So if your grandma says, hey, will you carry my bags for me for a mile? You'll be like, oh. Of course, Grandma, I love you. In fact, let me go two miles. This would be great. It would be easy to do it for Grandma, right? But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you're standing on the street having a nice chat with Grandma, and this Roman soldier comes and goes, You, come with me. You're carrying my my spear and my luggage and my food, and you're going to sing me a song while you do it. You're like, I do not like you, right? Because that's the way they thought about the Romans. The Romans were not, you know, the boys in charge. The Romans were enemies. The Romans were hated. These were occupiers who came into God's land and conquered and took over, and we do not like them. And that's what Jesus is talking about. This is your enemy who has this legal right to make you do something, and he says, when that comes, you do it with a glad heart and go further. Do more. There should be an escalation, but it isn't, I'm going to get you worse. It's I'm going to honor you more. And that's what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus is talking about going above and beyond. right? He's setting up the audience for what he's going to be talking about next week, loving your enemies. Love your enemies. Do something for them when they request it of you and do more than what they've asked. He's saying that once that soldier hands you his stuff and you get to the end of the mile and that soldier says, okay, I'm releasing you from service. You've gone a mile. I'll find somebody else to carry it from here. You say, no, no, I'm good. Let me continue to carry it another mile for you. That'll give you more time to find somebody else to take it from here. That would be incomprehensible to the Jewish people. Are you kidding me, Jesus? No, sir. No, sir. I'm not doing that. And that's that's Jesus's point. What it takes to have the righteousness that's required of the law to be a part of the kingdom of God is this kind of righteousness. And the people say, I cannot do that. I will not do that. He's telling us if we're asked to do something unreasonable or something we do not like, the kind of righteousness that's required by the kingdom that he's talking about would have us go well beyond what's asked, even though it's painful, even though it might be off-putting. This, just like everything else he's been telling us for weeks, is impossible, completely unreasonable, completely unbearable, and that is the point. The righteousness that you need is out of reach. What you need, what's required for you to enter the kingdom, this righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees is unattainable. Last illustration, number four. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So he says, give. How much? Doesn't say. How often? Doesn't say. To whom? The one who begs from you. All of them? Hmm? Give. Give. Jesus is looking for unqualified and unconditional generosity. Give to the one who does what? Begs from you? Anyone. Anyone who asks something of you, whether they, you think they deserve it or not, give to them. And then do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So somebody wants to borrow money from me, I'm not allowed to say no? Really? Even my deadbeat cousin who will absolutely put that stuff in the stock market and lose it in 45 minutes? Yes, him too. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And what kind of loans are the people of God supposed to be giving? Interest-free kind. That's what kind. Interest-free loans. Exodus 22, verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Leviticus 25, 35 to 37. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest or give him your food for profit. So what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about generosity. Generosity. A spirit of generosity that pervades the Old Testament in addressing his people and is clearly a requirement of those who would be in the kingdom. These last two examples of giving to beggars and lending to those who ask, they seem to be referencing this generous spirit that's required of God's people. Deuteronomy 15, 7 and 8. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. So does Jesus really mean that we're supposed to give to every single person in need who might beg from us? Wouldn't that mean we would just give all of our money away? Everything we had, we would become destitute ourselves? Surely not. Jesus is challenging us. Jesus is challenging his followers to this unnatural and and seemingly impossible behavior. Why is it unnatural? Why is it impossible? Because in this broken world, we are sinfully beholden to some degree to self-interest. This means that even if we really, really try meet the expectations that Jesus just laid out for us, we're still going to fall short. Even if we decide, everything he just said, I totally believe it, I'm going to do it, here we go, then we might give to a beggar occasionally. But we won't actually roll down the window for every single panhandler that we see. That we might actually turn the other cheek with one offender, but we will still fight. We will still resist if we think the offense is great enough. We might still be generous with our time, with one circumstance, with one person, but we won't go the extra mile with everyone who asks something of us. But in the kingdom of God, self-interest does not rule. In the kingdom of God, there is a focus on others before yourself, outdoing one another in honor. This other-centeredness is what Jesus is appealing to, and to truly get it right is literally impossible. And we might, even, we might even figure out how we can just do the action. Roll down the window, and give some money to every single person who begs, loan some, some degree of money to everybody who asks, go the extra mile with everybody, but your heart will not come along for the ride every time, even if you do the right action every time. At some point, our sinful hearts will grow frustrated with an offender, and in our hearts, we will not be turning the other cheek, even though we might have kept silent. At some point, we will grow weary of giving our hard-earned money to people that might spend that money on booze or drugs or something. And our hearts are no longer actually generous, even though we might have actually given to them. Because that's what Jesus is talking about. These are issues of the heart, not just action. So we should attempt to follow Jesus' instructions here. Because that's what he's asking us to do. He's not making jokes. but we also need to know that we will fail. And that is Jesus' point, the whole way through. You cannot attain this righteousness. The impossibility of measuring up should create a longing in you, a desperation in you. The only way out of that predicament is to run to the one who does have this kind of righteousness. The impossibility of measuring up should make our hearts yearn and recognize that fighting for my own name, fighting for my own reputation, that's futile. There is one name that's good. There is one name worth fighting for. There is one name that's righteous, and that is the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He alone has obtained this impossible standard. He alone has earned this righteousness of the kingdom that does indeed exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. The law of God found in the Old Testament points forward to him, the only one who can fulfill it, which is the very thing he came to do. And that's what he's talking about. He came to fulfill the expectations of the law. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. The demands of the law must be met and you can't meet them, and so I will. He has overcome that which holds us back and prevents us from successfully obeying God's law perfectly on our own. This wickedness that dwells within the heart of every man, this sin, he has overcome it. He has fulfilled the law on our behalf. He has measured up. He has met the standard. He's done all of this, and in his mercy and his grace, he gives it to his people. His righteousness has been imputed to all whom the Father calls to himself. This Sermon on the Mount is meant to highlight this reality. God's standard is impossibly high and completely out of reach for sinners. And so God sends his Son. And as it says in 2 Corinthians, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a glorious and good God we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're good. We're grateful that the reality is we are completely incapable of this faithfulness, completely incapable of this righteousness. And so, Lord, I pray that none of us would sit in that reality and forget the end of that story. It isn't just you can't do it. It's you can't do it and I've done it for you. What a good gift. So Lord, I pray that this morning we would be encouraged, we would be reminded that although our hearts desire retaliation, our hearts desire vengeance, that you have given us the remedy The kingdom of God has come. Jesus Christ has come and inaugurated that kingdom. And it will be consummated when he returns. And that kingdom will be free from all of this. There will be no vengeance. There will be no need for those things. But these things he's described will indeed be the markers of his people. And so we thank you that those things are true. We pray that you would be near to us and encourage our hearts this morning that we would not be... Weary, that we would not be sad, that we would not be forlorn, that our hearts would not be downcast, but instead that we would be enriched, enlivened, excited about the reality of what you've done for us. I'm grateful to you for this text. I'm grateful to you for this word that your Son has brought to us, that we might know the glory and goodness of our God, who has accomplished this impossible task for us. Bless us now as we continue the time that we're spending this morning together. We pray that by your Spirit, we would be encouraged and reminded of your love. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.